Hello and welcome to another edition of Daf Shui, Weekly Daf. Give me 40 minutes or so and I'll give you a Daf or so. Welcome back. It's been uh, it's been a minute. Glad to be with you. Glad that you're here. Welcome. Make yourselves comfortable. Pull up a chair. Pull up a bench. Pull up a, a recliner. Pop open a brew. So, I've been thinking about, uh, you know, every Wednesday, I go to the Black Lives Matter and Police Association's demonstration, purpose of which is to recognize that so-called police unions are not actually unions like other unions, since uh, they basically kill other union members and cover up misdeeds of their own union members. The LA Police Protective League has been doing that back since the 60s and 70s, uh, when they opposed the mayoral campaign of uh, Tom Bradley by signing a petition saying that if a black man was elected mayor in Los Angeles, then some 65% of the uh, Police Protective League would quit the police force because racism, of course, is a much more important principle than protecting and serving, which the police have done if uh, you translate that as protecting their own privileges and power and serving the white community in Los Angeles, more or less, not even completely so. But I was uh, at the, the Wednesday demonstration and was struck by the fact that there's a unique type of politics that's happening. Because to go up against the police union, something that most politicians fear because of their strength, in an exercise which most people see as futile, it's a politics of perseverance. Before this was the Jackie Lacey Must Go campaign in which BLM, who did not endorse a candidate, but merely called out Jackie Lacey for having never brought charges against the police officer involved in a shooting, never, without endorsing a candidate, without ever endorsing a candidate, managed to get Jackie Lacey kicked out of office. And that had to do with every single Wednesday coming out, demonstrating, and then, of course, phone banking and canvassing. But it's the politics of perseverance. And that politics of perseverance is powerful. It's creating a space. It's turning public domain, Rishut Rabim into a very specific type of Rishut Yachid, Rishut Yachid, which is a communal space for this community. It's taking over the streets. It's making that claim, whose streets, our streets, very much one of the goals, one of the central planks of the political platform. It's not. The streets don't belong to the police union and the police department. And I remember clearly in 2000 at the Democratic National Convention being downtown LA and police in their, what they call their frog, what we call their frog suits, which is their riot gear, double-stepping through downtown chanting whose streets are streets. The police chanting whose streets are streets. And the, the loud answer to that, the forceful answer to that, the just answer to that is no. These streets are not your streets. Um, these streets are the streets of the people and need to be returned to the people. And especially in the case of most impacted communities, black and brown communities, um, these streets must be return to be their streets, and it's the politics of persistence is how we get from here to there. Movement, organizing. Okay, so that's, that's what I've been thinking about. It's what I've been thinking about over the days of Hanukkah, and on Hanukkah, actually, the, at BLM, Melina Abdallah asked me to give a little spiel about Hanukkah, which I did. We just passed Parshat Vayigash, which was the shortest Shabbos of the year. The shortest Shabbos of the year. So here's my, my own theory for this week. My theory for this week is that the reason that we have long Shabbatot in the summer is to remind us that 
we rush like crazy to get into Shabbos in the winter, not because Shabbos is short, because we also rush like crazy to get into Shabbos in the summer when Shabbos is long. It's just because that is the nature of Arab Shabbos. You just rush like crazy to get into Shabbos. That's it. That's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. All right. And now a special announcement. Dashui is a low overhead operation, which happens because we love to do it. However, there are some ongoing costs for the recording and podcast hosting and the like, in addition to my time and Ellie's time and talent. So we are trying something new. Dashui now has a Patreon account. And if you feel so moved, you can put in a few bucks in the hat and join those who have already put a few bucks in the hat. Remember, we are not one of those corporate Duff Shui outfits. We are just a mom-and-pop shop from the heartland of Los Angeles. Thank you so much. And remember, who's Duff? Our Duff. So we are on 80A Top Line Mishnah. We are coming off of a conversation which had to do with plants and plants that grew and what grew out of the plants within the context of the conversation about can a person sell or acquire something that is only that will only exist in the future, what we call today futures. And so there was a debate between sages and Rava. Sages said no, Rava said yes. Okay, so that is one context of, of the conversation. The other context is the larger context of Olam Mishnayot in this chapter is that when you buy something, what do you buy, right? It's Hamocher the first chapter, the first mission in the chapter is when you buy a boat, what do you buy with it? Hamocher buy it when you buy a house, what do you buy with it? And so that's the other context for this chapter. And then this Mishnah itself is wonderful because of the fact that it does, that it assumes knowledge of apiary and aviary, um, of beekeeping and dovekeeping. Um, so apiary and aviary knowledge. And to be perfectly honest, apiary is a new, a new word to me. I'm beekeeping. We're going to take a little bit, we're going to go through the mission, take a little look at the Rishonim, because the Rishonim, especially Rabbeinu Gershom in northern France and Meiri in Provence, had very specific things to say about beekeeping. Okay, so here we go. In the Mishnah. So if one, if one takes literally the fruit of a dovecoat, meaning the doves, if one buys the doves from one's fellow, so he has to allow the first brood to fly away. Right? He can't take those, he can't kill those, he can't use those. And the reason for that is to is is for sustainability, because you're only buying the doves and you're not buying the dovecoat, right? Alkeh Perot Shovach. Perot Kaveret Notel Gimel Nechilim Umisares. If one buys the fruit of a beehive, so then one takes the first three swarms and then Misares, and the Gemara has two different understandings of Misares. The simple understanding here is then um uh, castrates them, as it were, so that they no longer reproduce. So there are a couple of things. So let's go, let's do a little bit of a dive into what does it mean to buy the doves of a dove cot? So the point is that first, he's buying the perot shobach and not the shobach. He's buying the, the young birds and not the dove coat itself, so that he purchased, that the purchase must allow the dove coat to remain sustainable. Now, what we have to know about a brecha, doves lay two eggs in a month. And this we find also in the Rashbam and also in Wikipedia. Who knew? Doves lay two eggs in a month, and that is a brecha, a male and a female. The claim of the Breita later on, we'll see, is a little bit different. The Yad Ramah in Spain, Ramer Halevi Abulafia, 1170-1244, to 
is more concerned with the fact that the, the peyrot of the dovecot, in other words, the birds that are born, points to the fact that what is being bought is future earnings. The, these are the fruit of the dovecot, while the birds that were already hatched are the principle of the dovecot. And the Adrama raises the question that how could this be if we hold according to sages in last week's sugya that a person cannot sell something that doesn't exist. The Yad Ramah answers that the Mishnah goes according to Rabbi Meir, who, Rabbi Meir, who says, Adam a person does sell something that has not existed in the world, or that the sale, as we said before, is of the dove coat for its, or of the beehive, for its bees and honey. In this way, the object that is sold actually does exist. So actually you're selling the dove coat itself for its whatever it gives birth to. And then the Me'iri, and this is fascinating, the Me'iri goes a little bit more of a deeper dive. So he talks about what is the Me'iri is, is Provence, or actually then it was Catalan in Catalonia in 1249 to 1316, the, more, the 13th, 14th centuries. This is referring to a new dovecote, our Mishnah, in which there are only, as of now, these first birds that were brought there by the owner. For when a person builds, this is a quote, this is a translation of a direct quote. For when a person builds a dovecote and wants to populate it, a person brings doves in, male and female pairs, as many as one wants, young ones, and has them create a tarbut there, which I think it means a habit. In modern Hebrew, tarbut is culture, but it, I think it means like it, it builds a habitat, creates a, a habitat. When they get a, build old, a bit older, and this is the part that I found pretty cool. The owner places in the pigeonholes that were prepared cumin and other warm seeds in order to get them used to those holes. Then, when they are used to the pigeonholes, they mate. Right? So, he he seems to have pretty intimate knowledge of uh, dovecoats. Now, the interesting thing about uh, raising doves, and we've seen raising doves in previous chapters, that this is something that was, that was prevalent across the ancient Near East, and of course, into the Middle Ages, doves were, were useful for both for themselves, for, for eating, but also their uh, poop, as it were, was important for fertilizer. They were also apparently signs of uh, signs of royalty and nobility. So it was good to have a dovecote, and you'd often have a dovecote right next to your field so that when the birds would fly around, they would fly around and they would defecate on your field and thereby fertilizing them. So that was good. That was a win-win-win. As it as it were, so that's that's the the dovecote and uh, dovecote and and uh, we know, and by we I mean people who know these things know that there was extensive uh, raising of doves and pigeons in France, northern France, where the Rashbam was, in Catalan Provence, where the Meiri was, and in Spain, where the Adrama was, and they obviously uh, had uh, had some really serious knowledge about what was going on there. Now, beekeeping. This was more of a surprise to me. We haven't really actually looked too much into beekeeping in, in Dafshui. So the oldest archaeological finds directly relating to beekeeping have been discovered in Rehov, a Bronze and Iron Age archaeological site in the Jordan Valley, Israel. Thirty intact hives made of straw and unbaked clay were discovered by archaeologist Amichai Mazar, an important Israeli archaeologist, in the ruins of the city dating from about 900 before the Common Era. The hives were found in orderly rows, three high, in a manner that could have accommodated around a hundred hives, held more than a million bees, and had a potential annual yield of 500 kilograms of honey 
and 70 kilograms of beeswax, according to Mazar. That's, uh, to translate that into non-technical language, that's a lot. And our evidence that an advanced honey industry existed in ancient Israel 3,000 years ago. Now, we're only talking, you know, let's say 7th century, 8th century Babylon or earlier 3rd century Palestine. We're only talking like 2,000 years ago. So this is even 1,000 years before that. Aspects of the lives of bees and beekeeping are discussed at length by Aristotle. Beekeeping was also documented by the Roman writers Virgil, Gaius Julius Hyginus, Varro, and Columella. Francois Huber in the 18th century was the first to prove by observation and experiment that queens are physically inseminated by drones outside the confines of hives, usually a great distance away. Huber confirmed that a hive consists of one queen who is the mother of all the female workers and male drones in the colony. He was also the first to confirm that mating with drones takes place outside of hives and that queens are inseminated by a number of successive matings with male drones high in the air at a great distance from their hive. This is something that obviously the Gemara didn't know about. They didn't know exactly about the mating, but they knew about mating. They just didn't know exactly how it happened. The forerunners of the modern hives with movable frames that are mainly used today are considered the traditional basket top bar movable comb hives of Greece, known as Greek beehives, which also allowed the beekeeper to avoid killing the bees. And Greek beehives is interesting because the Rashbam here on the page mentions them, right? And when he talks about how often the bees uh, reproduce, um, how many swarms there are, it says, that in the state of Greece, in the kingdom of Greece, there are beehives that go up to seven or eight swarms a year. But in our kingdom, meaning in northern France, it's mainly three times, especially Shigarua Mikulan, and the third swarm is the worst of them, uh, because the last one is always the worst. Therefore, Therefore, we're talking about the three, in the Mishnah, the three initial swarms, which are the important ones. And so what's fascinating to me here is that actually the it seems that this knowledge of beekeeping was prevalent. I mean, the Rajbam knew about it. This I, I'm quoting from, from Wikipedia, which has a really solid article on beekeeping. Who knew? The Rajbam goes into pretty decent depth about pretty decent depth about beekeeping. What when how you after uh, the bees are inseminated, there's a difference between inseminating to get males and to get females. The males are the drones, are the worker bees. They're the ones who, who make honey. And at a certain point, they leave the hive, or you can make them leave the hive, and then they create another hive, and there's a way in which they they uh, awaken another queen. There's one queen for every hive in order to make more honey. So when you are selling the bees, the perot kaver, when you're selling the bees, and we'll talk later on uh, in the next line, that there's another perot, right? There are other fruit, which is the honeycombs. But when you're selling the bees, you're selling this possibility of selling the swarms of bees, which are then going to create beehives, which are then going to create honey that you can use and sell. Though the bees themselves are also valuable because of this production. Now, also at the same time, there's just the same question of sustainability as with the dovecoats, right? If you sell all of the bees, then you've just killed your production. Right? You've just sold off all of your hives. It's like if you if you have a dairy farm and instead of selling the milk of the cow, you just, you know, killed the cow and then you're done. 
right? You sold the cow itself, then you're done. You no longer have a dairy farm. So here, what that? So you don't sell. You only sell the swarms, so that the hive can then again the next year come back and swarm again, and then you could have more and produce more honey and produce more bees, et cetera, and so forth. And again, this goes into the question. This crosses over into the question of the two questions of what do you, what are you actually selling or buying when you're selling or buying a beehive? But also the question of buying something that doesn't actually exist in the world. And the same uh, question, is it that we are just buying the beehive? And through that, whatever the beehive happens to, to produce. Okay, third line in the Mishnah. We're all the way up to the third line. Chalot dvash chalot. So also... If you sell the honeycombs, so you leave two honeycombs in the beehive. Um, in other words, if you, the buyer leaves two honeycombs in the beehive for the seller in order to keep the hive going, and that's uh, so that the hive can reproduce in the next year. Zeitim lakuts grufiot. An olive tree. If you sell an olive tree in order to be able to to cut it and then replant it, you have to leave enough on the bottom of the olive tree that has two branches so that the olive tree can regenerate itself. And then the Gemara goes into a long discussion of, somewhat long discussion, a moderately long discussion of uh, how much of a tree the tree needs to be able to regenerate itself and grow further. Okay, now we're ready. Let's dive in. Gemara. V'hatanya brechari shenavi So the Gemara starts strong with saying, but we have a brighta that says that when you sell a uh, a dove coat, you have to, the buyer has to let fly, in other words, leave alone the first two brechot, the first two birthings, first two broods. And two broods are actually just four eggs, two males, two females. Amar Avkahana la kasha hala hala ima. So here Ravkana says that this is not a question. We're talking about two different cases. One case is just the mother of the brood, and the second case is talking about the daughter of the daughter of the brood, right? In other words, so the, the second generation. One case is just talking about the first generation, and one case is just talking about the second generation, right? The Adrama understands the Brighta to be referring to a case where the mother and the daughter bird were already there prior to the purchase. This is not an empty dove coat like the Meiri says. Okay. Amrav Khan, Alokashala So there are two different cases. The mission is talking about when it's just one brood, and the bright is talking about when there are two broods. So you have to leave one brood for the mother and one brood for the daughter. Why is the mother different? So the mother is different because the mother has community with, or makes a grouping together with the daughter and with uh, her partner um, who's left. And though, so the mother is uh, okay and, and, and is together and is not left alone. So the Gemara asks Bo, that the daughter also will also make a community with her mother and with the partner. Um, so why do you, what, why do you have to leave her brood with her? Ima barta mitztavta, barta ima lamitztavta. So this is a little bit of looking at animals as if they are people, like anthropomorphizing animals' emotions, but apparently that might be true phenomenologically, that a, a mother seeks community with her daughter, 
But a daughter doesn't see community with her mother. A mother wants to be close to the daughter, but the daughter, not so much. You know, time to go away. So therefore, it's enough for the mother to have her partner and her daughter. The daughter needs her own kids so that she will seek be close to her own kids. Okay. And you can uh, extrapolate whatever anthropomorphic messages from that that you wish. That is my present to you. So in terms of the offspring of the hive, the buyer takes the first three swarms, and then you are misares. And we're going to talk about what misares means. Initially, we're going to assume that misares means to castrate, to stop reproduction. But how does one castrate them? For all intents and purposes, it's not necessarily cutting off the way the castration is. Amar of Yehuda Amar Shmuel Bechardal Rav Shmuel says with mustard. Amri b'marava mishmei Rav Yosi Barchanina in the West, meaning in the land of Israel. They said in the name of Rav Yosi Barchanina, Lo chardal misarsan elamitoch shepihen chad chosrot v'ochlot et duvshanan. It is not that the mustard itself castrates them or makes them infertile, but rather that since they eat the mustard and then their mouths are bitter. And so they go back and they eat the honey in order to counter the mustard. And when they do that, they, they're too busy eating the honey, they don't reproduce. Rabbi Yochanan notel shalosh nechilin b'sirus. Rabbi Yochanan said, no, you got it all wrong. Misar son doesn't mean to uh, make them infertile. B'sirus is another way, is a way of saying serially, like not, not one after the other, but uh, skipping. So uh, Rabbi Yochanan says, you take three swarms, take one, leave one, take one, leave one, take one, leave one. And in the in a Mishnah, it teaches, you take three, the, the buyer takes three swarms, one after another. From that point on, he takes one and leaves one. Okay. So that is the range of opinions about Miss Sarsan. This week's podcast is brought to you by Shazam for Idolatry. Have you ever walk down the street and see people doing stuff that's got to be idolatry? Have you ever been in one of those conversations where your best friend's new friend is mouthing off about stuff that is so off the wall it's got to be idolatry? But you don't know how to find out? Well, now there's an app for that. Shazam for Idolatry. It's just like Shazam, but for idolatry. Pointed at the offending person. The action which is an abomination. The political ideology. And the app scans it and tells you on the spot whether it's idolatry or you should just chill out. And if you mention Daf Shui, you get the app free for a month. Just go to www.shazamforidolatry.com slash Daf You won't regret it. Alright. Chalot dvash miniach shte chalot. So what about the honeycombs? Amarav kahana dvash bakaveret eno yotse mide olam. So Rav Kahana says that honey in a beehive, in other words, a honeycomb, is always considered food for the purpose of impurity, right? Because we didn't have enough conversations here already beyond just contracting and buying and selling. Um, So we're bringing in a whole conversation about impurity. So when honey is in a is in the the beehive and when it's in a when it is a honeycomb so it is considered food for impurity for the purposes of impurity when food gets wet then it becomes impure if it comes into contact with any impure object and this is actually 
why we wash our hands for the first time at the Seder without saying a blessing before we dip the karpas, which is a vegetable. We dip it into water. We wash our hands so that our hands are not impure when it touches the karpas so that the karpas won't be impure and then we'll be eating impure food. So then we so we challenge Rav Kahana if you say that honeycombs are always food for the purposes of becoming impure, that means that you don't need any intention to make them into food that can become impure. Meitve, but we have a brighter which says, Dvash bekaveret eno lo ochel velo mashke. When honey is in the is in the hive, it is neither food nor liquids for the purposes of impurity. So what's going on here? Amra Abaya, Abaya, harmonizing. So Abaya says we're only talking about those two chalot, that those are not, that they stay in the in the hive. Those are the ones who are neither food nor drink. Rava Amar, Rebbe Lezer. Rava says this goes according to what Rebbe Lezer said in a Brayta, it's none. It says in a Mishnah, Kaveret Dvorim, a beehive. Rebbe Lezer Omer, Harehi Kakarka. It is like earth. It's like ground. And therefore, you can write a prusbol based on it. A prusbol is a document that allows you to collect loans even during the Shemitah year. And the way you do that is you give them over to the court as a corporate entity and Shemitah only applies to individuals. And then the court allows you to collect that even in the seventh year, even if the seventh year has passed. But in order to write a prusbol, you need a piece of land to connect the prusbol to in some way. So it is, so Rebbe Lezer says that it's like land and that you write you can write a prusbol on it, except it doesn't become impure in its place. In other words, while it's still in the honeycomb, it doesn't become impure. And if somebody takes it out, scrapes it on Shabbat, that person is obligated for a sin offering, meaning that is considered a melacha on Shabbat. It's considered a forbidden activity of rodeh. The important point here is that it doesn't become impure while it is in the the uh, beehive, and this agrees with uh, that mission that says, that a honey in the beehive is neither food nor drink. And the sages say the opposite, surprisingly enough. One can't use a beehive to write a prusbol. It is not like land for how you buy it and sell it. And actually, it accepts tumah, can become impure. And one who scrapes it out on Shabbat is not accountable for it. I'm a Rebbe Lezer. My time, I do Rebbe Lezer. So Rebbe Lezer says, what, what is the reasoning of Rebbe Lezer? Who Rava says, uh, this right to go there. And this is fascinating because this is a verse which is brought here, but it is actually not really connected to what we're talking about, though it is always brought when we talk about the questions of purity and impurity with honey. It's a verse from from 1 Samuel 14, 27, and it has to do with soul fighting. And then we say, we're going to fight all day long. We're not going to stop and nobody's going to eat anything. And Jonathan, Jonathan hadn't heard about that 
Bashbiat Aviv et Am when Saul had adjured the whole people, saying that nobody should get anything et and he put out the edge of his staff, and that was in his hand, and he dipped it into a honeycomb. But the word for honeycomb, and he put it back in his mouth, and he ate, and his eyes were lit up again because he was no longer hungry, and then Saul has a whole problem because he said he'd kill anybody who eats all day, and Jonathan killed. No spoilers here. Go read 1 Samuel 14. But the point here is that it says Ya'arod Dvash, which just means honeycomb or honey from a, a beehive. But the Midrash is reading it and always reads it as Ya'arod Dvash. Why do you need Ya'ar with Dvash, not Ya'ar as a honeycomb, but rather Ya'ar as a forest? So, the Gemara. So, what, why? What's the purpose of having a forest next to the honey? Just like in a forest, one who pulls something out on Shabbat is culpable for a sin offering. Somebody who who tears up a, a something from the ground on Shabbat. One who scrapes the honey out of the honeycomb on Shabbat is obligated for the sin offerings. If you're Wondering now, well, how do we get from here to there and back again? That's the wonderful world of Midrash, right? Because it says Yarod Dvash. Why all of a sudden is Yarod next to Dvash? Why we're thinking about honey? So therefore, what, what, where do we have a resource on honey? Therefore, we go there, and therefore, um, we come back here and we say that this is Rebelezer's reasoning that, and this is where Rebelezer shows that uh, Dvash is considered Ochel in the honeycomb. So, Meitveh. The Gemara says there is a challenge from another source. Dvash hazav mikavarto eno lo ochav lo mashke. Honey that drips out of the out of the, the hive is neither food nor drink. So that seems to contradict what it says. Uh, honey in the kavarot is neither food nor drink. So this is outside. Bishlamala ba'ya So that makes sense. According to Abaye, that's fine because Abaye said, "What did Abaye say?" Abaye said that that only the two honeycombs that stay in the beehive are neither food nor drink. But Rava, what do we do with Rava? It's a problem for Rava. So Amara, because Rava says that it's according to Rebelezer, and Rebelezer says that um, it's only in its place. And Amakabelat to my bim koma that it's only when it's in its place it doesn't become tamei. And here it's saying, actually, when it drips out, it still doesn't become impure. So, Rosid said, no, we're talking about a case where it drips onto a disgusting dish, so therefore it's obviously not going to be food, so therefore, because nobody's going to eat it off the disgusting dish, so therefore it will not become impure. Rabbi Yaakov says, if it falls on small shards of glass or, or fish, um, scales or little little pebbles, which you can't eat it. So therefore, it 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 doesn't get uh, food impurity because it's not food. Meitve. Ah, another question. Dvash bekavarto enolo ochav lo Honey in its uh, beehive is neither food nor drink for the purposes of impurity. Chishev alav laachila mitame tumat ochlin. Lemashkin mitame tumat mashkin. So if you thought about it to become food, 
then it, it is in, becomes impure for food impurity, right? If it gets wet. Lemashkin, if you thought about it for, to become drink, become a fluid, you're going to drink it afterwards. So then it becomes impure for uh, fluid impurity. So this is okay for a bayi who says that it's only inside, but if it comes outside, then it, it can. But for Rava, it's once again a problem. Rava says, No, understand it like this. Rather, it says, if you think about it for eating, then it doesn't become it doesn't get a, a impure food impurity. And for fluid impurity, it doesn't uh, get fluid impurity, impurity of beverages. Right? So actually what Rob is saying is that you have to understand, you have to reinterpret that line in the Brighton to be the opposite of what it actually says. So this... Help this goes according to what Rav Kahana says. Dvash a honey in the beehive has food impurity, can make something impure with food impurity without any thought. So therefore, that agrees with this uh, final brayta, which which says according to Rava that if you thought about it to eat, it still doesn't make something impure with food impurity. And we have Tosefta that says the same thing. Honey that dripped from a beehive does make uh, something impure with beverage impurity or, f- or fluid impurity, drink impurity, whatever you want to call it. Tumat mashkin. alav But if you thought about it to become food, it does, it does uh, make, it does have food impurity. All right, moving on to olives, olive trees. Zeitim lakuts meniach shte grufiot. So if you if you sell an olive tree in order to cut it and replant it, so then you have to leave two branches on the bottom of the olive tree. In other words, the buyer has to leave two branches on the bottom of the olive tree. It's not Rabbanan. So we have a text that says, Hello, Keach. If someone sells a tree to their friend to cut and then replant, the person goes up from the ground a tefach and cuts. If it is a sycamore, which has never been cut for cuttings, so then one goes up from the ground three tefachim, three tefachs, tefach about six inches more or less, if it is a sycamore that has already prior been cut prior to this, so then you only have to go up two tefachim, about 12 inches, and this has to do with its ability to regenerate itself. Bikanim ubigfanim min ulamala. If we're talking about kanim or gifanim, which are reeds or vines, so then you have to go from the pakak is kind of the, the where the first branches come out and above that. So above where the first branches come out. In palm trees and cedars, you have dig into the ground under the roots and take out the roots because if it's just the, the trunk, the trunk does not regenerate in Gizan Machlif. And is it true that you need three tefachs for a sycamore which has not been cut for plantings? Urimini, we are going to question this with another text. 
We're going to pose a contradiction. One cannot cut the sycamore, which has never been cut before, on the Shemitah year, because it is a forbidden activity on the Shemitah year. So that means, seems to mean wherever. So Rabbi Yudah says it is okay. It is in, if you cut it the way you normally cut it, it is forbidden. But you're allowed to cut it if you go up from the ground ten tefachim and then cut it there, or if you raise it from the ground level with the ground, because those two things are apparently not activity on the seventh year because they're not good for the tree. So, okay, if you're going to raise it level with the ground, so that's bad for the tree, so that's why it would be okay. But the but if you raise it 10 tefachim, so then it's good for the tree. So why is that good? Amr Abaye, Abaye says, Gimel tefachim malile. Three tefachim are good for the tree. So that's why three tefachim are forbidden. That's kidarko. That's the way. Me'im ha'aretz vaday kashila. But if it's raising it at the level of the ground, it's obviously bad for the tree. But between that and and three is neither good nor bad, and above three also is neither good nor bad. So on the seventh year, you're allowed to do something to a tree, which is obviously bad for it. And for sales for selling, you're obviously allowed to do something that's good for the tree. So you're only allowed to do something that's obviously good for the tree, which is at three tfachim. Okay, but kalim ubarazim chofer mesharesh makhlif. So going back to that brighta that we quoted before, it says cedars and palm trees, one has to dig into the ground under the roots because the trunk does not regenerate itself. The eres engiz o machlif, and is it true that a cedar, its trunk will not regenerate? And this is fascinating because we're now bringing a proof from a midrash on a verse in Psalms that might be familiar to those of you who go to Kabbalah Shabbat. I'm not going to sing it. Why? What does it mean when it says a righteous person will flourish like a date palm, like a cedar in Lebanon will flourish, will we'll grow up high, tall? If it said already a date palm, why did it have to say a cedar? If it said a cedar, why did it have to say a date palm? If it had said only a cedar and hadn't said a date palm, I would have said that just as a cedar doesn't have fruit, so too a tzaddik, a righteous person, would not bear fruit, meaning children, or or fruit in general, actually doing stuff impacting the world. Lechach nemar tamar. Therefore, it says date palm. Im nemar tamar v'lo nemar erez. If it would have said a date palm and hadn't said a cedar, I would have said that just as a date palm, its trunk does not regenerate, so too a tzadik, uh, it too, it's in essence, will not regenerate. Um, and by that, I mean, will not have continuation, will not have students, etc. Therefore, it also said a cedar. 
Ella, okay, so therefore um, it seems from this that an Erez, its trunk, does regenerate. So rather, what are we talking about here before when we said that an Erez does not regenerate from its trunk? From other types of cedars. This is like Rabba Barav Huna. Dama Rabba Baravuna, Rabba Baravuna says, Amri Be Rav, they said in the house, in the study hall of Rav, in the school of Rav, Asarami Ne Arazim Haim. There are 10 different types of eras. Shinemar, as it says, Etain Bamidbar Erez, Shita Vahadas Veit Shemen Asim Barava, Brosh Tidhar Vitashur Yachtav. And this is translated in the JPS. I will plant cedars in the wilderness, and then you go. Acacias and myrtles and oleasters. I will set cypresses in the desert, box trees, and elms as well. So it's not really ten, but you get another, you get more later. So Erez is so all these are the same except Erez is Arza, a cedar. Shita Turnita is an acacia. Hadas is Asa, which is uh, a myrtle. H. Shemen is oleaster. Are actually, but a farsima is not. It's according to the Gemara, according to Sakalov, it's not an oleaster, but rather a balsam tree. A farsima is a balsam tree. A brosh, which here is uh, translated as a cypress, is actually translated as barte, which is a juniper tree. Tidhar, uh, which is translated here as a box tree, is translated by the Gemara as a shaga, which is a teak. And ta'ashur, which is translated by uh, which is translated in JPS as an elm, and not only JPS is you know in all the lexicons as an elm, is translated in the Gemara as a shurvina, which is a cypress. So it's not Gemara is not completely in accord with the JPS with the English translation. Ki ata Ravdimi, Amar. When Ravdimi came from the land of Israel to Babel, he said, "Hosifu alein alonim amonim amogim." They added three more, so that makes that gets us our ten. Alonim, Almonim, Almogim. Alonim is botne, terebinth. Almonim, balute, is an oak. And Almogim, casita, is coral. Igadamri, and those who say that actually the tradition is Aronim, Armonim, Almogim. Aronim, Are, Armonim, Dolbe, Almogim, casita. Aronim refers to laurel trees, Aronim to plane trees, and Almogim to coral trees. So there you have it. This is uh, the end of our daf. It's actually a little bit onto the next daf before the Mishnah. This Mishnah talking about what do you buy when you buy honey, doves, trees, and also it by implication, and this is actually the Rishonim talking about it more. Can you buy something? All of these things are talking about something that hasn't come into the world yet. Because when you buy the tree, you're buying the fruit. Seemingly, when you're buying the beehive, you're buying the honey. When you buy the dove coat, you're buying the future doves. So that's the other interesting intersection and a deep dive into dove coating and beekeeping. So we come to the end of our duff. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Having you here in the Beit Midrash in the closet, I am Aryeh Cohen. You can follow me on Twitter at Irmiklat, I-R-M-I-K-L-A-T. My thanks, as always, to my wonderful Haruta Charlotte Van Robert, my amazing producer, 
Eli Unger Sargon, please check out his podcast, Four Cubits with Jeff Helmike. And of course, my undying gratitude to the communications team at Dafshui, Shachar Cohen Hodos, who came up with the beautiful logo that adorns the podcast page. If you have any questions or comments or criticisms or, you know, jokes or just interesting things, uh, drop me a line at thewidowandthebrothers at gmail.com. It's a pleasure having you. Please come back next week. Tell a friend. Bring them along. There's all kinds of room here in the Beit Midrash in the closet. Be well. Stay safe. <laughs>